episode 1347 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello. Hello. We are doing previews today, and that's going to be almost the entire episode because they lasted a long time. So first, we're going to talk to our friend Annie McCullough about the Dodgers and life and death. And then we're also going to talk to Rustin Dodd of The Athletic about the Kansas City Royals. Anything you want to say before we get to Andy, which is like twice the length of a typical preview? Andy is, I mean, Andy's like 70% banter. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we did. We talked about the Dodgers eventually too, <laughs> but there's a lot of extra stuff in there. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm, I'm hoarding my banter for an episode that's not already an hour and 38 minutes in the tank. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've got five minutes, maybe. I just want to point out, I I wrote about the competitive picture of baseball at the Ringer this week. It's something we sort of touched on, I think, last week a little bit. But the National League is just so much more exciting this year than the American League, I think, in general, and specifically a couple divisions within the National League. So we're going to talk about the Royals, who I think are one of the more exciting teams in the AL for me, not because of whether they're going to win, which they are but how they might win or at least how they might lose but it is kind of striking just to see the difference like I I looked at the projections for the teams in each league and in each division and sort of looked at how tightly they're bunched up and this year's AL I, I used Jeff's actually preseason projections spreadsheet which he's been assembling since 2005 so it has win totals for every team over the past 15 years And this year's AL is like the least compressed league in that entire time, according to the projections, because it's just like four or five really good teams and then everyone else kind (laughs) of not so much. So wait, what's your what's your metric of compression? I used like just standard deviation of of wins uh, for that, which you could look at other ways because, you know, what makes a playoff race exciting sometimes is just whether there are two teams that are evenly matched more so than whether all five or four teams are but yeah if you look at it just how compressed are the win totals around an average the al is the least compressed this year of any that we've seen since 2005 i do find that a two-team race is is actually probably more exciting because if you get too many teams in then you start having games where you don't feel like it matters who wins because like like from your perspective like Mm -hmm. you're rooting for team x which means rooting against Team Y. But if there's Team Y and Z and they're playing each other, then you no longer really care who wins. And it takes away some of your good scoreboard rooting. Yeah, that's true. I didn't consider that. Yeah, I mean, the NL East and Central, obviously, we've talked about that. It it is, I think, obvious to everyone that they are exciting. The NL Central is one of those divisions where, like, everyone is decent, at least. And I think all the teams are within a range of about 10 projected wins. So that is exciting. I think that is objectively exciting. And if you sort, like, I did it a couple ways. Like, I looked at the top five teams, and then I just looked at the top four teams because I didn't really want to penalize the NL East for the Marlins being the Marlins. Although, in a way, that almost makes that division more interesting to me because I kind of want to see how terrible the Marlins will be playing four good teams all year. But if you just look at like the top four teams in each division, 
it goes NL East and NL Central, and then there's like a huge gap between them and, and the next tightest division. But it's even like the NL West is the third one, actually. So all three NL divisions project to be closer, at least looking at, at the top four teams, than any AL division. And if you look at the top five teams, then of course the NL Central really stands out because there's no terrible team there, despite the, the Pirates' lack of effort lately. Yeah. That all sounds familiar to me. (laughs) Yes, it does. Yeah, so it's nothing uh, surprising. I kind of wrote about this when Bryce Harper signed with the Phillies in a different way because I think that was maybe the the best way that that could happen from a competitive and entertainment perspective. But anyway, the numbers bear out exactly what you would think, and I'm glad that we have the NL making baseball interesting these days because it was the better league last year for the first time in 14 years. But aside from being better, which I expect it still will be because most of the offseason activity this year was NL teams getting better. It will just be, I think, by far the more compelling league. You know what's wild, Ben, is if let's say that, well, if the A's somehow collapse, like let's say the A's win 77 games, Mm -hmm. the second wild card could go to the A's. Yeah. (laughs) And it could get to like where it sort of the the anti-competitiveness of the AL could lap around to become extremely competitive among like <laughs> nine 76 win teams for the second wild card spot. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I don't know, maybe the A's won't collapse. Well, I guess there's, you'd still have the Rays. You'd need the A's mm-hmm. and the Rays who both project to be yeah. uh, well, decent enough. But well, and you have the and Angels, the Angels yeah. too. Yeah. So there mm-hmm. are teams that are, uh, but all of those teams could very easily win 79 games. Yes. And, uh, and we could end up with a weird race. Mm-hmm. All right, baseball and the Twins. I don't don't sleep on the Twins, Ben. Okay. <laughs> uh, with with that division, sure. I don't know what I was trying to say. My point is that the second wild card spot could be a novelty. Yeah, well, that's the only interesting thing. I mean, Yankees Red Sox. Is, Yankees Red Sox is good. Yeah, that's interesting. But you know that both of those teams are going to make it in one way or another, so that takes away a little bit from the intrigue. I think so. You're left with basically second wild card, which yeah could be good, I guess in a way. All right, so we have a lot of previewing to get to, so we will take a quick break and be back with any color of the LA Times. Here comes the National Express. 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 Okay, so we are joined now by our old pal Andy McCullough, who is now the national baseball writer for the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Andy. Hey, what's up, guys? Glad to be back with the little people. (laughs) (laughs) We're national. We cover things on a national basis, I think, sometimes, although we're talking about the Dodgers today. How does it feel not to be on the beat for the first time in 10 years, right? This is 10 years for you. This is, yeah. I mean, I did nine years on the beat. You know, uh, I don't... Uh, I'm trying to find a way to put this properly and make it seem professional. The day the 2018 baseball season ended was one of the top 25 days of my life. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I, 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 it wasn't because the Dodgers lost. I would have been perfectly fine covering a you know a Dodgers win, but uh, that was a that was a, a truly great day for me. I, I really uh, I walked out of the ballpark 
you know, holding my arms aloft, knowing that uh, uh, I won't be on the beat at least until um, you know my career stalls and I have to go, you know, cover um, you know JUCO wrestling somewhere. <laughs> so, what's your uh, what's your vision for yourself now? Who do you who do you want to be as a columnist? Who like what, what's your what's your your professional ideal? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think. I look up a ton to you know guys like Dave Shinen and Tyler Kepner, you know, from the Washington Post and, and the New York Times, respectively, uh, and it, you know both for their talent and their enthusiasm and their ability to produce interesting stories. But I, you know, we're sort of kind of trying to sort out what our coverage model is going to look like, and uh, you know, we found that the, the LA market is is pretty interesting. I mean, it's very. Uh, narrow. I mean, basically, like if you know, the Lakers and the Dodgers are the two things that people in LA care about the most. And so, having a more sort of uh, national, you know, vision, like going to write a good story about the Brewers, you know, um, you know, people in Los Angeles aren't as interested in that as maybe they would be for you know, a paper like like the the Post or the New York Times. And so, I think you know, kind of the 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 model that we're going to go to is is more akin to maybe what you know how the how the Boston Globe has covered the Red Sox for a long time in which um you know and obviously Nick Cafardo you know who just kind of passed away a few weeks ago in just horrible you know really really sad fashion you know but Nick had, and had continued on a lineage of with the Globe of sort of doing that uh, you know elevated coverage of the local team while also keeping the national perspective and so it's pretty locked in on the Dodgers in a lot of ways but you know with the freedom to go out and and do things I mean you know so there's you know I, I don't know I mean I, I'm just happy to be employed honestly you know like I, I like you know I like writing stories and I like you know having the freedom to kind of do them uh, at some of the the links that um <laughs> that I've done them in the past, and so uh, I'm just kind of grateful to have that opportunity. I guess still with the, with the times. Do the uh, do the players treat you any differently in a different job? Are they uh, <laughs> are they in any way impressed by the promotion? Do they, uh, like, what, what is what is their relationship? The word. I'm curious to know. I guess I'm curious. What is their relationship to the different tiers of of sports media? I would say that every time I have walked into the Dodgers clubhouse this spring, someone has yelled national guy at me. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, to the point that uh, Justin Turner, who's someone I've covered since he was with the Mets and have a pretty good relationship with, has taken to just openly disrupting interviews that I'm doing and asking, you know, if I'm different now, like asking the person I'm interviewing if they feel like they're being grilled by a national guy or like, hey, you need to show a little more respect. You're talking to a national guy, um, you know, so uh, it's a, you know, I, I had a great exchange with I, I, I happened to catch up with um with Ned Yost at one point this spring and we were sitting down and, uh, you know, and uh, where, hey, where, where is where, where is, is Ned, Ned these days? days? You will not believe this. <laughs> Ned Yost is the manager of the Royals, which, uh, that wild? which is a story I will be writing actually in the next couple of weeks because uh, it, it surprised me. You're breaking uh, the news. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you guys know he's still the manager of the Royals? Um, I think that's the, the best, best fun fact in baseball. Right <laughs> I uh, I went and saw Ned, and uh, you know. And uh, I obviously my career has a pretty curious relationship with the Royals. I was kind of, um, you know, toiling in obscurity in this little town called New York City for, you know, four years before I went out to Kansas City and, uh, 
And, you know, so anyway, I was talking you to Ned. Made, and, you made the Royals. You showed up and, and oh, you know, so things I looked up and then you left. And I said to Ned, uh, you know, he was like, you know, Andy, it's, it's, it's so good. You know, I'm, I'm really happy for all your success. <laughs> and I was just like, well, you know, look, I mean, you guys certainly helped. And he goes, no, no, we didn't help. Just like you didn't help us win the World Series. And I was like, all right, we're not doing this. Like, I, you know, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah it's so it's it's been it's i've uh for whatever reason i've always sort of had weird interactions with the people i cover probably because my personality is um you know uh, deranged um but uh so it's it's it, it definitely has I, I like the guys who i've covered for a long time who i know pretty well you know need to remind me that i am now a national guy uh almost every single day i'm around so how, yeah, how did they find out, out? Well, because, you know, we kind of had a weird transition in that we hired, um, you know, Jorge Castillo uh, to be kind of my replacement on the beat to take over the beat, which he's done a great job with thus far. Um, you can follow him at Jorge C. Castillo on Twitter. Um, and we hired him, though, like last August. And so, you know, and he, the idea was he would have a couple months to kind of get to know some people and, you know, start hit the ground running next year or this year. And so when he was around, like he was kind of saying, hey, you know, I'll be here covering the team and I'm kind of taking over the beat. And like there were multiple times where like I would see him like interacting with someone and they would look up, the player would look up and just shout across the room at me and just be like, where are you going? And I'm like, I I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm still going to be around. They're like, what? I don't get it. I'm like, never mind. <laughs> it's not that complicated. But yeah. So, yeah. So, so a lot of guys found, a lot of guys I just, you know, told for the most part. So you know, cause yeah, I, I don't know. You just fall into conversation with people and they say, you know, what's going, what's going on in your life? And it's like, well, I'm never going to be here anymore. So I'm very happy. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I'm actually sort of surprised and impressed by the level of awareness of a yeah. columnist versus beat writer and exactly what the media jobs are. I mean, I guess it makes sense because I've never had that type of relationship with players because I'm never covering one team on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. So you do get to know them, even if it's just kind of in a like work friends sort of way. Yeah. And, and, and the LA market, although it's a huge market, there's really not a lot of guys on the beat. You know, there really is four beat writers you know it's it's it was uh, you know it's the it's the times it's ken gernick at mlb.com it's bill plunkett and from south california news group and it's uh you know uh, some guy for the athletic so um <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember what his name that, that guy sucks whatever his name is no and and pedro uh moto for the athletic so uh, you know, it's not like New York where there was, you know, legitimately like half, you know, a dozen faces there every day. So it, it, it is more of a small town than you'd think, at least in terms of that aspect. Mm -hmm. I guess we should ask some questions about the Dodgers other than what they think about your current <laughs> employment. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's why people tune into this podcast. We haven't even gotten to the, you know, the, the 10 minutes at the end of the podcast when you guys are trying to, you know, cut things off. And I'm like, no, no, no. Have you guys had mashed potatoes lately? Like, they're really good. I tried them recently. Yeah. Well, one of the most memorable stories you wrote as a beat writer was about Farhan Zaidi and his fantasy football acumen. And All of my questions were going to be about that. <laughs> all of them. Like literally every question. That's why I'm just control, all, delete. All right. Yeah. Well, you can ask those questions. I'll just ask. Right now, the Dodgers, I think, are technically the only team that has no general manager, which maybe is kind of a meaningless distinction at this point because often the GM isn't actually the the 
number one person in the department anyway and the Dodgers have had like five GMs at the same time at various points but they lost Zaidi obviously to a division rival they lost Chris Woodward this offseason Chris Woodward took their assistant hitting coach Luis Ortiz with him their hitting coach Turner Ward went to the Reds they lost an R&D analyst Isan Bokari who went to run the Astros R&D department and I guess this is kind of a multi-year trend because, of course, they lost Gabe Kapler. They lost Alex Anthopoulos. They're right. lots of people, which like is probably a good sign if other people are hiring your people. But have the Dodgers replaced those people? Is there like any void that you're aware of is losing Zaidi as big a loss as it seems like it could be? I mean, just briefly to push back on one thing, I do think there's a few other teams that don't have a GM. Like, I, I believe the Red Sox and the Rangers at least come to mind. Mm. You know, so it's not like I thought it was a little strange, too, but I guess it's not as uncommon. I mean, it's all it's a title like, you know, right. Farhan was effectively the AGM. He just didn't have to deal with management as much. You know, so he was the GM, I guess. But, you know, I, I mean, the brain drain is a real thing. And I think it manifests in a lot of ways. I mean, they have made some replacements. They brought in a fellow named, uh, gosh, I hope his name's Scott Kingston, because that's what I'm going to call him. Jeff. Um, Jeff, I think. Yeah, they brought in Dave Kingman from the <laughs> Seattle Mariners um, to, uh, you know, teach the boys how to, how to swing that stick. Um, I'm pretty locked in. You guys can already tell on this uh, thing. Uh, this is, yeah. Okay, yeah, they brought in a, a fellow, uh, you know, Kofi Kingston. Kingston from the WWE to, uh, you know, teach the boys the boom drop. Anyway, he's like kind of been the big uh, offseason hire. You know, they've they've shifted some responsibilities to Josh Burns, who's obviously been in the organization since 15, but handles a lot of stuff on the, you know, on the amateur and minor league side. Um, Alex Slater, who's a guy in the office who's uh, taken more of the responsibility and I believe was in charge of ARB uh, these past couple years since they lost Alex Tamman to the Barbs. But, you know, look, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years, and for me, you know, Farhan Zaidi is a singularly gifted individual and probably the most impressive person I've ever come across in this business and in, in on the baseball side, just in terms of, you know, his uh, intelligence, his capacity for EQ, his capacity for, you know, sort of ability to handle criticism, ability to think through problems logically. Like he's sort of, he sees the baseball world in a way that you probably want, you know, in an ideal world, you'd want anyone to do that. And I think that benefits the Dodgers in lots of different ways and not just like, coming up with, you know, ideas and talking through strategies and figuring out how to build a culture of flexibility. But also, you know, he's the guy who texted Max Muncy when the A's cut him and said, hey, do you want a job? Like, you know, that they like there's there's it's it's big picture and little picture stuff. You know, his one of the things that he's famous for saying is like, you know, no move is too small to, you know, be invested in. And I think the Dodgers have certainly, you know, benefited from that during his four years there now that's not like obviously Andrew Friedman knows what he's doing he had a, a very good track record in Tampa Bay you know he's been basically the shepherd of this entire uh, operation here and you know things are obviously going very well but I just think not having Farhan in the room is a problem because he's not in the room like he, you know he's he's not in the room and not only that he's working for your chief rival and exporting a lot of the same strategies to 
a team in the division with uh, you know similar financial resources who had basically been not been practicing these things, and so it hurts on on multiple levels. And you know, I I don't think that it's going to be something that's readily apparent in 2019, but by 2021, you know, I think you know there's a chance it could be a real problem. Not so much that the Dodgers are helpless without Farhan Zaidi, but just the fact that he's working for their chief rival, like that is you know for a team that's willing to spend, and you know, so that is. Uh, I think going to make things really interesting down the road in the division. So is there any way that they could have kept him or is it just the case that under Andrew Friedman, everyone is going to be kind of not at their destination, that, that it will never be their team as long as Andrew Friedman is is there running things? No, I think it's a unique situation. I mean, you know, the, the Zaidi family has pretty deep roots in the Bay Area, I guess, from their time with Oakland. And so I think it was a decision that made sense for you know the family as well as from just a pure baseball perspective like i don't think farhan zaidi would go to the chicago white Sox to be the general manager or president of baseball ops or whatever i think this was kind of a unique opportunity so the dodgers let him go like he wanted to go it was a you know it was a mutual understanding that you know um, if they offer this job he was going to take it if it made sense so i think it, it would have been a little different if you know, he was interviewing with the Arizona Diamondbacks or something like that. I'm sure, you know, I don't even know if he would have interviewed, but I think the Dodgers could have found a way to keep him. But they, I think both parties understood that he wanted to go. So let's talk about your, your uh, tour de force. I think that, I think that the article that you wrote, I think the story that you told about <laughs> Farhan's fantasy football team is maybe the defining baseball article of this of this era of the sabermetric era of the data era whatever we end up ultimately calling this era in retrospect so basically the story is that Farhan and, and Andrew Friedman find out uh, about this fantasy football team somehow weasel their way into it as uh, as GMs and then Farhan finds all these sort of tactics that allow him to essentially create an unstoppable dynasty based on sort of careful reading of the rules and like super devoted uh, analytics or something. And before long, he's winning constantly and, and all the players hate him. Is that about right? That is, uh, I think Weasel is a little strong because uh, they were invited in by video coordinator, former video coordinator, current whatever Pratt does now for baseball ops, John Pratt. So, but yes, that is more or less what happened is they, they let these two guys into the fantasy league and Farhan won it three years in a row, driving his players effectively insane to the point that they, at one year, they started a rogue secondary league in protest of his behavior at the draft. And I wasn't quite clear of how seriously I should take their uh, their their resentment of him. Was this all in good fun or was it actually tense? I think it was in good fun for most of the guys, although I get the sense that Kershaw particularly was not thrilled with the setup. Um, he seemed to be the one who maybe wasn't taking it as, as well as some of the other guys. Like, you know, like, you know, like Justin Turner thought it was, you know, had a, had a good, like thought it was funny. And like Jock Peterson, you know, joked about how he's like been begging him to retire or whatever. And, you know, that sort of stuff. But, uh, th you know, there was, I think Kershaw, you know, Kershaw's a very competitive human being. And so he was, uh, he, he was, I think at one point he said something to the effect of like, you know, the thing that sucks about this is it kind of proves that analytics work, which kind of let in maybe a, a window into how Kershaw views some of the things that have been going on with the Dodgers <laughs> over the past few years. Um, 
But uh, it was mostly in good fun. But, you know, these guys are professional athletes and they're all like kind of crazy and they all like sort of think that they know more about sports than everyone else. And so to, to have Farhan just, you know, boat racing them year after year was not something that they particularly enjoyed. So this goes to the kind of larger question that I have that you'll have some insight into, I think, having covered the Dodgers specifically, uh, which is what is the state of the relationship between front offices and um, uniformed personnel these days, uh, particularly like relative to maybe 10 years ago when we were uh, all conditioned to believe that um, or led to believe that there was some tension, that there was a, a difficulty bridging that gap. Uh, and that in particular, that there was uh, a, a real need for maybe both sides to um, compromise a little bit on on their viewpoints. Wh- where where do things stand now? Is there still tension? Do they still kind of hate the guys in suits? And is it an obstacle in anything? Well, I think one of the you know, and this not to keep talking about the fantasy football thing, but one of the goals with it is to sort of humanize the executives in a way where it's like, hey, we can build some camaraderie. They know we're just not, you know, as you said, the guys in suits, but to sort of have a make it so that, you know, they are going to be present in the room. You know, it's like players know that, you know, if they go into the training room, you know, during the game or go into the weight room during the game, like Farhan's going to be in there doing cardio, you know, doing the Billy Bean thing. And so like that is a you know they they get a they they make it so that they sort of knock down the walls in that regard but you know specifically with the Dodgers i mean last year that was a real challenge i think you know they had a lot of talented players and they had a lot of talented players who also happened to have major platoon splits and so uh you know that led to a lot of platoons and a lot of guys you know, feeling frustrated about their roles. And, you know, it was something that they kind of tried to mitigate a little bit this offseason when they traded Matt Kemp and Yaziel Puig and Alex Wood and kind of getting, uh, clearing some space to give some runway for some of their other guys a chance to play every day. But, you know, yeah, I mean, the communication is tough. Like when you've got, you know, a 25-man roster with 25 useful players, you, you can't play the same nine every day. And so, you know, that's something that I think that Dave Roberts and Andrew Friedman, you know, have really stressed over the last few years is kind of building a culture of flexibility, you know, and I feel like, you know, it used to be like maybe like 10 years ago, probably the most tangible thing that a manager did was run a bullpen. Like that was kind of the the major thing. And like number two was like talk to the media. And now I feel like for a lot of these teams, it's, it's more about like building a culture of understanding that you're going to be fucked with and getting guys to allow themselves to be fucked with. And that is a real challenge, I think, especially for veteran guys who have, you know, been accustomed to certain, you know, just standard practices, you know, telling the guy all of a sudden, no, you're a five inning pitcher or telling the guy, no, you don't play against lefties. And just that sort of stuff is is a real challenge. And I think it's something that depends on a year to year basis. You know, in 2017, there was really no, you know, discussion about lineup construction with the Dodgers or, you know, who wasn't playing enough or who was playing too much or, you know, who, you know, whatever. But in 2018, uh, you know, both years they went to the World Series. But in 2018, you know, there was a lot of discussion about like, you know, do the Dodgers platoon too much? Why doesn't Cody Bellinger play against lefties? You know, blah, 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 blah. Like, how come David Freeze never plays against righties? And so it was just, I, I think it's just a year to year thing. And they're kind of, you know, hitting the reset button and they're trying to have some more everyday guys in the lineup. But, 
you know, they, they tried that last year and when they got to the deadline and found that, you know, they really, you know, were struggling to, to find those sort of players, you know, to get that sort of production from their roster. That's when they went out and got, you know, Dozier, Freeze, et cetera. So, um, it's just, it's a year to year proposition. You know, I, I, I think, uh, it's, it's one of the more fascinating things, you know, in the sport. It's just, a, it's a hard thing to predict how it's going to go. Cause so much of it's just based on how the team plays really. So what, one of the, the kind of more common frustrations for Dodgers fans is that the Dodgers haven't gone out and signed, you know, the biggest star on the free agent market typically. And I mean, it's sort of feel free to completely knock this premise down entirely, but uh, for a team with a $200 million payroll, there's a, a lot of young players, a lot of a pre-free agency, pre-arb players, and a lot of guys who were sort of picked up as free talent on the waiver wire or traded when they were not big stars or or, or whatever the case may be, or homegrown. And I, um, so I wonder if there's any aspect of not wanting to engage with the big stars on the free agency market is in fact uh, wanting to avoid players who are going to have a lot of maybe leverage in the way they're used or a lot of ego in the way they're used. And that there's something to the way that they've developed and acquired players that has given them the flexibility to kind of move these guys around however they want to without any of them being big enough stars with with a couple of exceptions to to really push back. Yeah, I mean that's definitely it's an interesting thought. I guess I'm just trying to come up with who is the player that they should have gone after that, you know, that would have that they that they didn't because of that theory. Mm-hmm. Like Granky, I guess, but like that that doesn't totally apply in my like Granky is the guy who they probably should have signed but did not and didn't because they felt like Phoenix's offer Phoenix what are they called the Arizona Coyotes now their offer was you know pretty ridiculous so but other than that you know it's like okay uh you know Harper they were interested in Harper on a short-term deal and you know the argument there was that he's not worth the price and the length of contract that is out there and I think if that's what your valuation is, I think that's fine. I mean, I don't think necessarily that that's a that's something you can really argue with, I guess. Uh, but it's like you know, Darvish. Like I, I don't know. I just there haven't been that many free agents who really come to mind. Who the Dodgers are like? Oh, we're going to stay away from that guy because he's rigid. I mean, maybe like Craig Kimbrell, you know, because Craig Kimbrell only wants to pitch the ninth inning. That probably wouldn't play well with the Dodgers. You know, one, they already have a, a human being who pitches the ninth inning. And two, you know, they ask their guys to be flexible. So maybe that is one that would make sense. But I would think more of the issue with Kimbrel would just be the decline in the stuff. So I, I do think that they like the idea of having players like a Chris Taylor, like a Kike Hernandez, guys who not only are capable of doing anything but are up for anything because they're young and hungry they want to get at bats they want to you know they want to build their careers you know etc you know someone like max muncie who comes up and is willing to play second base he's willing to play first base he's willing to do whatever just because he wants to be in the big leagues i do think there is a benefit there i just don't know if it necessarily connects to the other part of this is why they're staying away from you know harper machado you know whomever yeah, well, Harper's maybe is is a good example, maybe, because, I mean, if you look at the extra money and the extra years that the Phillies gave him compared to the Dodgers' sort of short-term offer, it's nine, nine years and $155 million, which is a lot of years, but not a lot of dollars. And when you think about it, like Bryce Harper from 30 to 38 or whatever at $17 million a year, that's a one-and-a-half win player, not even accounting for inflation. It's not the sort of salary that is in any way going to keep the 2027 Dodgers from doing what they need to do. But if he's if he's there and it's a headache because he's not 
that good and he you know you can't use him flexibly the way that you can use a you know a second year guy uh then it maybe is it just could be restrictive it could be a headache for the front office so i don't know i'm projecting something <laughs> <laughs> well and obviously the dodgers have like found a ton of good players even if they're not going to get the top of the market guy there was a, a stat from eric steven in the dodgers essay in the bp annual this year he said 18 different players, 10 hitters, and 8 pitchers amassed at least 2 wins above replacement player for the Dodgers last season, which is 5 more than any other team, and the average team just had shy of 7 players, so they had like more than double the average players, essentially, that the typical team has, yeah. and I mean, that's partly because of the flexibility that you're talking about, and they just use all these people and fit them in, but it's also because they keep finding them or yeah. creating them in the case of you know maybe Muncie or Taylor or just all these guys who have done new things I, I know Jorge Castillo just wrote a story about Kike Hernandez redoing his swing this right. offseason so it seems like they have a, an advantage over most teams in that area too yeah I mean their their depth is just stunning I mean you know it it you know it's so you know I spent the previous two years before I came to Los Angeles covering the Royals and that was a very good team I mean it was a very good team in 15 but they were constructed so differently it was like all right, here's nine players. We're going to roll them out every day and pray to God they all stay healthy. And they stayed healthy and they were a great team. But like, you know, the Dodgers do not like they look at things completely differently and you see kind of how it works. I mean, they just defeat every problem with volume, with numbers, which is they they can throw bodies at any problem and they churn through so quickly. You know, they like there's been so many guys who've been given a chance like Max Muncie who haven't you know, broken through, but you remember the Muncie's, you remember the Taylor's, you remember the Kike Hernandez's, you know, so it's, you know, they create an environment where if players succeed, they will be given more opportunities. And so that's a, you know, that's a, a huge benefit to them. And that's kind of why they have separated themselves from the rest of the division is they just can defeat any problem with depth, mm -hmm. Ex you know, except for win the world series, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, they, they keep getting there. So that's impressive. But <laughs> I, I think another thing that kind of came up this offseason was you had those leaked documents that I think Bill Shaken reported that were suggesting that the Dodgers were not going to incur the competitive balance tax. And they seem to have gone to great lengths to stay under that and to reset that tax rate. Do you think that that's something they're really concerned about or unwilling to go over? Or is it just kind of a product of what we're talking about where they have all this depth and right now no one is really pushing them in the division anyway? So if someone does, when the Padres get good or whatever, maybe then we'll see them start spending more again. Not that they haven't been spending, but, you know, as much as potentially they could. Right. I think it, it is it is kind of a, you know, it's hard in a league where no one is trying, the Dodgers are definitively trying, and that is so it's it's hard to bang them too hard for that or too too much for that, I should say. But yeah, I mean, the the issues with the with the CBT, I think it's there's a lot of stuff going on there. I mean, there's you know there's stuff with Major League Baseball in regards to their the, the debt servicing with the ownership. You know, there are some sort of benefits to you know them staying under the tax in terms of like comp picks they get and stuff like that. You know, or as Stan Kasten termed it, you know, real intricate baseball stuff, you know, which was really which really played well among Dodgers fans who haven't won a World Series in 30 years, you know. And there are also I mean, I just think 
they have been willing to, to go over the tax, you know, and, and I think, you know, their, their contention is that their tax number is higher than kind of the publicly available COTS number. Uh, they won't say what it is. So, you know, okay. But, you know, their, their contention is that, you know, they are closer to the number than, than COTS projects them to be. And, you know, there are some benefits, but I think, you know, they'll probably be willing to go slightly over, you know, at the deadline again this year. It's something they have, you know, shown a willingness to do. But I think they're, they don't want to put themselves in a position where they are consistently over it for a five-year period as they had been. And I think some of that is, you know, at the suggestion of Major League Baseball as to part of the, you know, the debt servicing. And some of it is just from a business practice. And, and some of it is, yeah, they, like they're facing no material pressure to win the division. They're going to pretty – like – it's hard to envision a world in which they don't win the division this year. And, you know, I can sort of envision a world in which they don't win it next year, but that would be like betting on the Padres, which is like, you know, what? So I, I, they're, they're very comfortable. And so because of that, they don't need to spend, you know, financial might when they don't really want to. And they've shown, you know, a pretty good discerning eye when it comes to some of the, you know, some of the money they've spent in the past couple of years. You guys, they they won a play-in game last year. I mean, I I agree. <laughs> I agree with you that they're clearly much better than everybody else in the division and probably much better than everybody else in the league and that things should work out and they should win the division by 14 games. But they, uh, you don't have to like strain your imagination that hard to imagine them losing the division. But I mean, I just will have to say, I have never seen a team play with its head up its ass the way the 2018 Dodgers did so consistently i mean yeah. it, like it, it's hard it genuinely is hard to envision them going like one for five against the 65 win team like they did against the uh you know the the reds Let, let's talk about that team and particularly let's talk about their clutchness because they are uh the least clutch team in history offensively probably by quite a, a large margin the three least clutch hitters in all of baseball were were all dodgers and I think six of the 30 least clutch hitters uh, out of like 400 were Dodgers. So is there any way to explain that? I, um, I would like to, but because uh, that's more satisfying than saying that we threw away clutch 20 years ago. Do you have anything to give us? I think it's a combination. I think obviously there was, you know, there's sample size stuff that guys performed beneath what their normal clutch number would be. And then I think you have some guys, you know, like Jock Peterson, Yasmani Grandal, who are just sort of, you know, talented but flawed hitters. And, you know, in those spots sometimes can be exploited. I think there's a lot to, it's a combination of things. I mean, I'm looking at it now and like they underperformed their Pythag by 10 games. Like, I mean, it's kind of, you know, this was a like a really 25th percentile season or whatever bad, whatever, they you know, this was like a bad outcome for them. And they still went to the World Series. So, yeah, I mean, the clutch thing, it was, I debated it back and forth with Dodgers folks, you know, all summer long and basically be like, what is the explanation for this? And they were like, well, you know, sometimes it's because, you know, the guys in those spots aren't coming through. And sometimes it's because, you know, bad luck. And sometimes it's that, you know, so I, I, I don't think there's a, there's one explanation for it. I wish there was because that would. Um, you know, there were some approach issues, you know, they felt like there were, you know, guys were getting into sort of, uh, you know, hitters counts, fastball counts, selling out for fastball and, you know, giving away at bats that way. And that was something that they were being exploited on, uh, in several spots in the lineup. And so that's something they're looking to correct, you know, this year and kind of get back to the sort of more tenacious at bats that they had in 17. Cause like, I'm looking at the, their baseball reference page and like the OPS plus for the first 
11 guys, except for Logan Forsythe, who was at 54, everyone is above 110, and everyone else is 120 or above. It's insane. You know, like, I mean, this is like, you know, this is what the, the 1998 Yankees look like, you know, in terms of OPS plus. But yet you watch them play on an every night basis. You're like, why did they lose to the Marlins tonight? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> we're going to talk about the Royals. Uh, we're going to talk about the Royals with Rustin in, in a little bit. And I was, I think if you put the two rosters together, like what, maybe 23 of the players would, would be Dodgers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Whit Merrifield and, you know, Brad Keller in the bullpen. I mean, like, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I, I would actually, I might have to be argued to get Keller on the roster. But you'd probably get Mondesi on the roster, though. So we're, we're 22, 22-ish. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's, that's about right. That's about right. I mean, th- this is like, like I said, this is a supremely talented and deep organization. Well, some of the things that you're saying sound like the sort of things that would be pinned on the manager, potentially, not getting <laughs> as much as, as you would think you would get out of your talent or, yeah. you know, having a, a high profile miscommunication with a, a pitcher being pulled in the playoffs, etc. Obviously, the Dodgers are not concerned about that because they just gave Dave Roberts a four year extension. So. Why do you think that is? Are Dodgers fans like more out on Roberts than the Dodgers themselves are? It's hard, I guess, to like have a manager be in hot water when he's won back-to-back pennants and the team has won six consecutive division titles. But some of the things you're talking about sound like criticisms that could be levied against a manager potentially. Wait, okay, let's let's unpack that for a second. Why is it a criticism? Is a criticism of the manager if the players play like shit? Well. Couldn't it be? Sometimes it is, right? It's like no, we, it's the players. It's yeah, like definitively the players. Sure, but isn't part of the the manager's job? I mean, fairly or unfairly, the manager's expected to make the players play well, right, and get the most no. out of them. No? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean no, if they're good the players, players, like if they're good players, which I mean, they are. Okay, I just do not understand why is it Dave Roberts's responsibility for for Yasmani Grandal to hit well in clutch situations. Wait, we're presuming that Dave Roberts has some responsibility for some aspect of the team, and and you could you could probably remove the manager's responsibility for everything that happens, and then you're left saying, well, why do we have a manager? Well, no, it's bullpen management. It's uh, creating the culture of flexibility, and it's basically not saying dumb things to the press. Like that's what a manager does. Like you know, I get what you guys are saying, and like I'm just trying to because like here's the thing. Like I have. Especially in the past few years in Los Angeles, I have become really, really, I do not understand when it became unacceptable to blame the players. You know, I think it's part of the fantasy sports and video game culture that a lot of us were raised in, in which we all feel like we can be GMs and be offensive coordinators and all this sort of stuff. And we feel like the players should behave based on what our whims are rather than you know, their own sort of, uh, ability. And like, I do think, you know, for example, I think Dave Roberts made a mistake in game four of the world series, taking out Rich Hill. I think that's one thing that you can definitively put at his feet, but I think, you know, you have to be like, you have to kind of use your head on this. Like, I just don't see how it's his responsibility for them to perform in the clutch. What, you know, him coming over and say like, Hey, you know, don't choke on the bat too hard. Like you got this, you know, buddy, or him being like, Hey, give a shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not his responsibility. It's up to the players. And I just think we've started to blame management and specifically managers for things that are outside their control, you know, like, and so I I just, 
I, I really do push back about some of this stuff because like I think as an industry we have stopped blaming the players and I think that's a real problem because it really sort of you know it's not what's happening like it's the players fault if they lose generally like you know like it's not the manager's fault it's usually the player's fault i i basically i mean i like dave roberts and i think that ben is a very bad person for going down that <laughs> but, <laughs> but but i i think that part of the manager's job actually is simply to be the the level of accountability whether it makes sense or not that like at, at a certain point you just say we've got to get this done and if we don't do it, then you're you're going to get blamed no matter what. So whatever it takes to get it done, you got to get it done. And and there's something to having a message of accountability in an organization, and you have to have that that level uh, somewhere where you know a guy will just have to take responsibility for every aspect of what's below him, whether it's unconventional or or what. So I don't really have a problem with blaming a manager when a team goes wrong. I, I think there's something somewhat illogical to a lot of the criticism but from a organizational standpoint if you want to have a good organization you need to have some probably middle manager who you just say make it work yeah <laughs> i mean I, you're not you're not wrong i just i i just think like i think we're in the weeds sometimes and i mean sort of the royal we here when we talk about you know dave roberts is responsible for the offense's production you know he gets he gets all the blame essentially for the offense not performing well against the boston red sox but none of the credit for the team sort of you know recoup coming back from this you know they were nine games out in august and they were three games out and you know whenever like you know it's just sort of it's 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 selective based on you know the outcomes so but I think to get back to the original sort of thought, Dave Roberts is not popular in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> he is, uh, you know, he is like, it wouldn't shock me if he was booed on opening day. Wow. Was he popular after 2017? No. He oh, really? Was, yes, he was. Yes, because in 2017, you know, he made some pitching mistakes. You know, I think specifically in, in game seven, he stuck with you Darvish for too long. And, uh, you know, and that is something that, you know, he's admitted was a mistake and something that he would have done differently. And I think it's, you know, in the moment you could tell it was, you know, you could tell it was a mistake. And, and there was a lot of people who criticized him for some things he did in game five, you know, in terms of uh, going to Brandon Morrow uh, when Morrow had pitched in the previous four games. And so, you know, but, I, I, you know, from your perspective, you're like, wow, really? But it's like, yes, he is, you know, he is not well liked by a vocal segment of the fan base and now it's hard to you know separate sort of you know how many of those people are just the sort of people who send you messages on twitter and on your emails and um, that sort of thing but like you know after game four of the of the um the world series this past year you know there were fans chanting you know fire roberts in the stands and so you know and i think you know, I think that's somewhat bonkers given, you know, his, I think he's legitimately one of, you know, the best managers in the sport, but you know, that he made a pretty significant, you know, error that night. And, uh, you know, and he kind of has to bear, and he did bear responsibility for it. But I think when, when you have this culture where the manager's to blame for everything, when he actually messes up, it becomes, you know, sort of like a, a tidal wave. I didn't even think pulling Rich Hill 
was a mistake. Personally, I, I only thought the mistake, if there was one, was the way it happened with him not actually meaning to pull him and Hill yeah. not wanting to be pulled and then the whole miscommunication aspect. Yeah. Like just I mean, a... the whole thing was such a goat rodeo. I mean, just like, <laughs> I mean, just a, just like so many, you know, I think, I think everyone involved, you know, bears some responsibility. I think, you know, Rich said some things to Dave that, that confused Dave, you know, during, you know, in the inning, he said, you know, Hey, keep an eye on me. He said that twice to him, you know, and, mm-hmm. You know, from Roberts' perspective, you know, I asked him, I said, had you ever, has Rich ever said that to you during a game? And Rich, and he said no. And, and you know, and, and Rich later was explaining it as, like, I just wanted him to feel comfortable taking me out if he thought that was a better decision. And, like, yeah, you know, when you're talking about this, you know, at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, you're like, oh, wow, what a selfless act. But, you know, when, you, when you're in the heat of a World Series game and everyone's adrenaline is spiked, I think that set off a trigger, you know, in Dave's mind that, Something was up with Rich, and Rich was ready to go. Uh, Rich insists he was not ready to go. He just wanted to. So anyway, you know, it's like all these things. I mean, Dave walked out to the mound to take him, you know, to basically pump him up to face Brock Holt, and Rich handed him the ball and walked off because he assumed he was done. I mean, the whole thing is just like, you know, it's a it's a cavalcade of of uh, goof ups and you know mix ups and all this sort of stuff, and it's. You know, uh, and, you know, and, you know, Scott Alexander could have thrown a strike too. Like he, you know, he's allowed to throw a strike when he came in, but he didn't. And then, you know, Ryan Madsen doesn't have to hang a change up, but he did. So, you know, but it's the manager's fault. <laughs> so are any of the other <laughs> negative stories surrounding the Dodgers this offseason, the off the field stuff, the, the Gabe Kapler stories about how he handled or didn't mm-hmm. handle allegations of abuse against minor league players or the international operations investigation and the spreadsheet of criminals and all of that? I don't know whether the Dodgers are particularly bad about these things or whether every team is and we just found out about the Dodgers, but do you think there's any lingering fallout here? Has there been any re-examining of anything or like some risk of penalty befalling the team at some point? No, I mean, from my understanding is they've kind of been cleared uh, by MLB and there's, and uh, I'm not I'm pretty sure Tim Brown reported that there's no DOJ investigation going on so my understanding is i thought the the article in sports illustrated that uh, john wertheim did kind of outlining this as you know kind of gabe kapler versus nick francona i thought that was reasonable depiction of events Mm -hmm. so i wanted to ask you about kershaw because uh he is throwing a baseball again that uh seems like a good sign i don't expect you to know whether Clayton Kershaw will hold up or be good again. But I'm curious what you know or or think about how he is handling this diminishment or transition in his career as an extremely competitive guy. It seems like he did sort of accept it a little bit last year, or at least he, he changed the way he pitched. He started throwing a lot of breaking balls, just doing whatever worked. He also, though, tried to get some velocity back this offseason. So I don't know. Is he the kind of guy who can settle into like a CC Sabathia type phase if he needs to or is he just going to be kind of banging his head against the wall yeah so my goal for this is to not be as depressing as uh divish was talking about felix hernandez like that was some (laughs) yeah man that was some dark (laughs) dark stuff yeah yeah i mean i think you know the i i I wrote something about kind of sabathia a few weeks ago and how it related and i was struck Mm -hmm. by some of the similarities but also some of the differences about how they've 
gone about things. And, you know, for Sabathia, the thing that has really kept him alive these last three years has been his cutter. And now, so it's not as simple as just, you know, giving Kershaw a cutter. It'd be the idea of adding a fourth pitch, which would be a changeup, which he has, you know, flirted with for years, but has never really felt comfortable enough to implement it. He has said in the past that he's confident that if he needs it, he will learn how to do it. But I think, you know, that progress has been slowed by the fact that he's just really not physically able to pitch right now. I mean, he's, you know, he's going slow with the shoulder and taking some time um, to kind of build up. He's, you know, I'd be pretty surprised if he starts on opening day. Um, I guess there's still a possibility, but he hasn't even really, he's thrown one bullpen session, you know, as of right now, he might throw another one today, actually, uh, Wednesday, but, you know, he threw a bullpen on Monday and that was his first time off a mound since he kind of initially felt the shoulder inflammation. And so, um, you know, I think, I think he has become if you talk to people who know him pretty well and people have been around him for a long time, he has become a little more open to suggestion in recent years in terms of his training methods, in terms of, you know, maybe how he attacks hitters and, you know, opening up other quadrants of the, you know, the strike zone when he'd always been, he'd been in for so long, everything was in, 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 he started to work away a little bit more, but, you know, he was throwing more breaking balls uh, last year, but, you know, the thing that happened is that he hurt his shoulder in May. And when he came back from that, he also, you know, he subsequently hurt his back and missed, you know, another, you know, month or so. But when he came back for good, you know, around, you know, sort of the summer, the depth of his breaking ball was significantly different. And it went from being that big, you know, that sort of hammer 86 87 88 you know slider that you know he could use to just sort of pound guys in with and became kind of more of just a cutter and it was a useful pitch but not the sort of lethal pitch that he'd had before and i think there is some thought that the reason the depth of the slider went away was because of the issues with the shoulder in order to manage that. You know, he's never vocalized that, but he doesn't vocalize anything when it comes to stuff. So you really can only get it from the opinions of, you know, sort of scouts and stuff like that. And, you know, people in the organization who aren't authorized to speak about it. So, you know, I think that is a real concern. You know, it's not the velocity so much. Like I think you can live with 90, 91, you know, the occasional 92, if your location is good and if you're, you know, pitch to pitch sort of uh you know determination is there but i think you need weapons and you know the curveball is all you know for as famous as the curveball is it's not the pitch that made him into the superstar that he is it's the slider that really separated him from everyone else you know the curveball is not a show pitch but it's much closer to a show pitch than what the slider had been the slider was the uh you know the devastating one so to not have that is a real problem especially when you know the fastball velocity is going down you know the shape of the fastball it sometimes has a natural cut so you know sometimes you know scouts would say that the two pitches were kind of indistinguishable is that a slider was that the fastball i don't know it says 89 and it kind of went in a little bit and so you know yeah it's uh you know and then the the bigger picture stuff or or the, the the less sort of technical stuff about how he's handling it i mean i think it's real challenge you know talking to people around the team you know this spring they say he's in a you know he's in a good place he's you know he understands kind of where he's at physically and what he needs to do and and all these sort of things but you know you know I've covered a lot of really good players doing this before and 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 Kershaw is still different I mean he he his give a shit is off the charts I mean it's 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 you know he's someone who is you know is dedicated really like his 
life to this. And I know all these guys have, but like, it, it's different. It's just, it's, it's hard to explain, but, but it, it, it's, you know, Dylan Hernandez and I often, you know, talk about this. Dylan's our, you know, columnist at the times and he had been on the beat for eight years and, you know, <laughs> Dylan, uh, you know, is, is, is not afraid to go after guys. And, you know, he's mentioned that, you know, sometimes like whenever he feels like he's going to rip Kershaw, he remembers all those days when he was at the ballpark at 2 p.m. and the ballpark was empty and Kershaw was just running in the outfield by himself. And it, and there's no one else who does that. And it just you, – you see the way that he's given sort of, you know, his body specifically, but also just, you know, his emotional energy and, you know, his parts of his mind and parts of, you know, everything. And so it's, 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 it can be hard to watch, you know. And, and I think I've used this metaphor – on this show before, but like covering Rich Hill and, and Clayton Kershaw, you know, Rich Hill makes me think about the endless possibilities of life and, you know, all the ways in which you never know where you're going to end up. And, and, you know, you can, you can be anything you truly want to be if you commit to it. And Clayton Kershaw makes me think about death. You know, he just, he makes me think about how, you know, the end will come for all of us and you need to give all of yourself before you get there. Um, and we've kind of moved into that, you know, that stage where it's not the end. He's, I think he's still going to be a pretty good pitcher, you know, in, in, in 2019, but he, he's, he's had to confront his baseball mortality in recent years. And I think he's getting better about dealing with it, but it's, it's a challenge, you know, it's, it's a real challenge for someone like him. I think you just weave together Rich Hill and thinking about our mortality in one answer. That's the most effectively wild response. <laughs> who would you uh, who would you take this year? One year only, Walker Bueller or Clayton Kershaw? Walker Bueller. Okay. Uh, I think we're we're kind of in like an interregnum period where I, I don't think that will be a question next year. Mm-hmm. I have not been entirely clear about how much Kenley Jansen's heart issues would have affected his performance and also how scared I should have been when he pitched and whether his performance is, is an issue at all relative to his, his larger health. So can you kind of give me the quick guide of Kenley Jansen's heart? How is it? How serious was it? Uh, how should I feel about it? And is it distasteful to talk about his performance last year in light of it? Or is it all uh, totally in, in bounds? That's a good question. Um, his heart condition didn't make him pitch better. Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, I think it was something that definitely weighed on him mentally. I don't know if there's a, a correlation physically, um, but I think it's certainly, you know, especially when they go to Colorado is something that uh, had affected him, you know, uh, you know, actually physically because of the altitude. And so I think there are some questions about, you know, how he's going to hold up, you know, in, in Colorado in the future. The idea is that the surgery he underwent this offseason will prevent um, any sort of future issues. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things with Jansen that I, I don't think you just say like, oh, because he had a heart condition, his velocity went down. And, you know, the cut on the cutter wasn't as effective. But it certainly didn't help. And, you know, I think it, it did weigh on his mind. Um, you know, approaching the surgery and, you know, and, and Kenley's a pretty, Kenley's a pretty open guy and a pretty, he can be blunt about things. And, you know, he was, you know, when he was kind of in between the flare up in Colorado and getting the surgery in the off season, like, yeah, you know, if my heart goes, it goes and like, no, 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 that's not, no, that's not good. Like, don't, (laughs) don't do that. Like, that's bad. Like, you know, (laughs) but I think he's past that. I mean, you know, I've talked to him a few times this spring. Um, He's, you know, he looks pretty slim. He's, he's having a better spring training than he did last year when, you know, all he seemed to do was throw a football around and, you know, punch David Vasse in the groin. So like, it's uh, you know, he's being more active. He's pitching in games, you know, he looks 
you know, trim, you know, I mean, he's obviously a, a large man, but, you know, he looks trim, he's in good spirits. And so uh, I think it's gonna be interesting to see, you know, because you're talking about a guy who in 2017, you can make an argument, he had been the best reliever, you know, had been the best reliever over the past, you know, three or four years, you know, kind of as how Sam dubbed it with Max Scherzer, you know what I mean? Like in the aggregate, like he was probably the best guy. Um, then he took a pretty significant step back last year and they didn't make many big additions to their bullpen. So, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, they kind of need him to bounce back. If not to be, you know, the best reliever in baseball, they kind of need him to be a top 10 reliever in baseball, I think. All right. So we have to end after this sprawling conversation with our very basic question about the win total. So how many games will the post Puig Dodgers win? They're going to win 93 games. Why does everyone on this show pretend like this question is hard? <laughs> well, I mean, it is hard. No, it's, it's also not. Just say a number. I mean, <laughs> but... just say a number. Say any number. Like, it's just amazing. Like, people who have been like repeated guests are like, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> they, they take their responsibility oh, as, as soothsayers seriously. You're um, just phoning it in here. Wow, let me think. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, the weirdest thing to me is that they uh that they struggle so hard with it and then they all inevitably just give an extra 6 wins to the team they cover because they know that they're going to get pushed back if they don't. It's ridiculous. It's like, "Oh man, you know, the, wow, how do I say wow. All right, uh I'm going to say that the Giants are going to win 94 games." <laughs> just, you know, or like, "Oh, you know, the Oh yeah, like wow, the Tigers. Um I think 82 is reasonable. <laughs> it's, just, it's you know, it's 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 crazy. Like I don't know. I mean, I love, you know, I look, I I'm a long-time listener, long-time caller in, you know, really enjoy the program. It just it amuses like I think it's gotten worse every year actually. Like the first year, you know, when it was just like Sahada of asking those questions, like people would be like, "Oh, yeah, they're going to win 91." But now it's like this existential crisis where you can say like, "Yeah, I think the Mets are going to win 86 games." Like I don't know. Well, now that you're national, you don't have to worry about the blowback from your your 93 win prediction in the clubhouse. Yeah, I'm looking at Dakota and Dakota's got 94. So I'm glad that I went under. I, I'm, I'm actually proud of that. I didn't do that on purpose. So that's good. <laughs> I don't know. They'll probably actually win like 98. They're, they're a good team. They're going to score a lot of points. They have a good offense. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you can find Andy in the LA Times. You can find him on Twitter at McCullough Times. You don't have to be a Dodgers fan because he's national now. He'll talk yeah. about it all. There's no telling what he'll talk or write about next. It's all a fair game. Is there anything you want us to pass along to Ned Yost via our upcoming guest, Rustin Dodd? No, I mean, you can tell Russ I said hi, even though I saw him yesterday in Arizona. I don't know. I w- I'm a... I can't tell if the Royals are like totally, you know, uh, like getting high off their own supply at this point, but they seem kind of confident that they have like a good future in place. And I'm like, I don't even know who these guys are. Like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, we got like O'Hearn and Dozier up last year. And I'm like, Hunter Dozier? (laughs) (laughs) So I, look. I think it's good for base. I think the Royals being good would be good for baseball. I think you know they play a when they were great. They played a really fun brand that a lot of teams have, are not doing. And so I I, I would like. I, I think it would be good for baseball if there was a team that like didn't just sell out and try and hit home runs. So that that could be fun. But whatever, they'll probably yeah. win sixty four games again. All right. So we'll find out who is on the Royals in just a moment after this break. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm not 
Joined now by Rustin Dodd, who covers the Royals for The Athletic. Hey, Rustin. How's it going? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. I'm glad somebody wants to talk about the Royals. <laughs> well, we kind of have to. We're talking about all the teams, so don't feel special. But I am actually looking forward to this Royal season more than I'm looking forward to almost any other AL teams, at least. And I don't know if I'm just getting my hopes up for something weird and different here or whether the Royals actually will be weird and different. So you've been in camp. You have seen all the speedsters. Are they running like crazy? Are they saying how much they're going to run? Is this really going to be bringing back the 80s again? Yeah, like so I guess it's difficult to tell from spring training and camp and Cactus League games, but to just see the the pure speed that they've kind of put together on their roster is kind of interesting, especially because, you know, a lot of these guys obviously don't get on base consistently, but I think they have three of the top 10 guys in sprint speed if you count Terrence Gore in that category, which I don't even think he has enough even like sample size of playing to to be on that leaderboard, but he certainly is, is up there. And then obviously, and that, that, does, that doesn't even count uh, with Merrifield, who led the league in stolen bases the last two seasons. So the Royals have talked about potentially stealing 200 bases as a team, which I think would be maybe the highest in a decade or two. So we'll see if they can do it. I mean, they certainly are talking a big game about how they sort of want to change the game in terms of being a team that, like they were in 2014 and 2015, a very contact-heavy, B-dominated lineup and sort of see if, if that can be a winning formula for them. So one of the things about stealing bases is that it's hard. And Billy Hamilton, who uh, was supposed to basically be uncatchable, has you know never stolen 60, but he's been very high. And then last year, he only stole 34 bases. Uh, it's not like he's doing so with like a an outlandish success rate or anything like that, because you know stealing bases is very hard. But Whit Merrifield, who led the league as you noted in stolen bases last year, uh, isn't an, an exceptionally fast guy. I think he's 50th on sprint speed leaderboards. And Mondesi, if he'd played a full year, quite possibly would have actually uh, led the majors in stolen bases. And so this is a very specific question that I probably wouldn't ask about a team that I had more questions about, but it's the Royals. So I'm going to just try it. How's Mitch Meyer as a first base coach? <laughs> no, well, so so he's last year was his first year as a first base coach. And, you know, the previous four to six or seven seasons, they had Rusty Kuntz at first base, who's sort of a legendary base running and first base coach who you probably remember cracked the code on John Lester uh, during the 2014 wildcard game and seemed to be the first person in baseball who realized he couldn't throw to first base. Uh, maybe somebody did, did before him, but he seems to get the credit for that. So the Royals do have a seemingly a pretty good system for knowing when to run. And I think, I mean, Wood Merrifield is a, a special case. He's just sort of a smart baseball player and he seems to kind of take that to the max and know in certain situations when to run. But you know, with, without knowing like how other teams do it, the Royals just seem like they have sort of like 
you know, like they're going to a, a Las Vegas casino and they know exactly the the times and the formula that works. And and so it does seem like there is something there that it's just not just like happenstance that they seem to be pretty good at stealing bases. Yeah. And I wonder, because you mentioned that that that's kind of how the the 2014-2015 teams won, but also not really, because I don't know that any of these guys is actually Lorenzo Cain or, well, Alex Gordon is still Alex Gordon, but in a way he's not really Alex Gordon, at least in the way that he was. So, I mean, one of the hallmarks of those teams was defense. And of course, Billy Hamilton is an excellent defender who would have fit in right with those amazing Royals outfields of those years. But is that speed on the bases going to translate to defensive skill and performance, or is that not quite as much a strength of this team? I, I think that defense should be uh, fairly good. I mean, like you have Alex Gordon who won a gold glove last year at age 34 and, and seemingly is still an elite defender at now he'll be 35, which is, is pretty amazing. And then Hamilton is a good defender. I mean, they have decent defensive players around the diamond. It's not quite the 2014, 2015 level that, um, but I don't know. I, I think the Royals are sort of selling this speed and defense narrative for, for reasons that make sense, right? They play in a really big park and they've had success. And then they seem to think those things are undervalued, but they also just don't really have a lot of money to spend right now, right? And they're collecting all these minor league players and trying to develop their farm system and create their next wave. And it sort of seems like in the meantime, they're just sort of like, what is the cheapest way we can be really interesting and fun? And and so, like, I think there is sort of like, it's sort of reflective on, on them as an organization. But at other times, it just sort of seems like, hey, let's just try to be sort of interesting like Dave Morris talked about like let's just try to be really good at one or two things you know rather than be mediocre at five or six if we're gonna you know have a 90 million dollar payroll and I I tend to think that's just sort of kind of how it's come together that they just decided hey let's speed and defense and maybe it'll work maybe it'll not but if not we'll we'll pick in the top five again in 2021 and we'll set ourselves up pretty well yeah i like it i mean it's better to be good obviously but if you're gonna be bad for a while then be fun be entertaining like we used to talk about billy hamilton when he was on bad's reds teams like just try to steal 100 bases or something because why not it it would be fun and now maybe he will or, or if he doesn't then all these other guys will so i'm really hoping that they commit to this because even if they're not good i feel like I I might end up watching more Royals games than I would otherwise just because I want to see them try to play like a a throwback team. Yeah, for sure. And I I mean like they're they obviously have a lot of weaknesses, but you know like like Adalberto Mondesi, you know, could theoretically be, you know, one of the most exciting players in the American League probably this year in terms of his combination of speed and power and just, you know, you you like they have individual players who should be somewhat interesting to watch, which, you know, like last year, sort of like their first year of a, of a long rebuild, they were sort of cobbling it together and acquiring kind of veterans that they could flip. And it just made for not only a really bad team, but also a, a really uninteresting one. And so I think at the least it's, you know, like the 2019 Royals motto should be like, Hey, it should be sort of fun to watch. We uh, had a little fun with Andy McCullough uh, talking about Ned Yost still existing as the manager. And I'm I'm certainly not 
calling for his 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 firing or anything like that. I I uh, I have nothing bad to say about Ned Yost. Uh, I think we were mainly noting that it's um, it would have been expected that there were lots of exit ramps uh, for for them with Ned Yost uh, uh, along the past couple of years. So to what do you attribute him still being the manager? Why why do you suppose he has uh, he has avoided the axe? Yeah, so I think that you know the basic reason is that. Dayton Moore, the Royals general manager, likes working with Ned Yost. And I think he feels like they have a good camaraderie and he enjoys the continuity that they've had over the last few years. And it's just like a, a pleasant way to go about your business while you're maybe you're losing. I, I do think there are like there are other little like more practical reasons that, you know, Ned Yost has talked about like, hey, you like he went into last season saying like we're not going to be very good, you know, this year and we're potentially not going to be very good next year. I'm not sure if you use those exact words, but he basically said, Hey, I'll wear the losing. And I think the Royals thought, and, and because they're not even really to the point where they have a lot of their next wave at the major league level, that there wasn't necessarily a reason to find another kind of placeholder manager who was going to lose 90 games a year and then have to be a sacrificial lamb. You know, Ned Yost, his kind of place in Kansas City sports history is pretty secure. And if he suffers a few more 90 loss seasons, it doesn't seem like anybody's going to be too upset with him. So I, I just think it, it made a lot of sense for them to just sort of say, hey, and, and he seems to still like doing it. I mean, he's a very entertaining guy. Like you're maybe the most contrarian manager that I've ever covered. Like you ask him any sort of question you ask him, he will say like, oh, no, no. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Andy did the impression. You got to do the impression. <laughs> so is this dueling impressions? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it would, like, um, it's like, you'd be like, and Ned, would, would you say that Billy Hamilton is, you know, the fastest acquisition? I mean, not even the fastest player on your team, just the fastest you, guy you acquired this offseason? No, no, no way. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, um, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you a question about Mondesi because he is one of the most fascinating players in baseball, really. He was like a, a three-win player in about half a season last year, and he actually got better as the season went on. He ended with like a Javier Baez-esque strikeout-to-walk ratio, although obviously Baez was good with that ratio too, but it seemed like Mondesi was getting better in that respect as the season went on. Do you think there's a lot of growth plate discipline-wise, or can he just continue to be good even if he is kind of a free swinger? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Because I think even if he if he maintained his power and his speed combination with what he did in the second half last year over 162 games, he would still be a you know a four or five one player. You know, maybe even approaching six. So that would certainly play. But the on-base percentage has always been always been an issue, and so I, I feel like this. If you want to like, if this is going to be a telling season in terms of is he a potential kind of fringy all-star shortstop for a few years, or is he, you know, kind of like a top, you know, fifteen or twenty player in the game? Um, I think that you know, like, if he can start getting on base a little bit more and drawing walks, and if the league adjusts to him and start throwing him more balls, and he can lay off them, then then maybe he certainly has another level to get to but I, I you know having covered the Royals for the last four to five or six years like they had Alfie Escobar they've had Salvador Perez uh, two guys with with lots of talent and lots of ability and they've never really figured it out in terms of how to get on base so 
I guess you're sort of cautiously optimistic if you're a Royals observer that Mondesi is going to be different than those guys. But even if he's not, he can still be a, a pretty valuable player. Yeah, one of the sort of phenomena of the last few years is that I'm constantly being surprised by guys who I didn't think had as much power as they ultimately developed. And uh, Montessi was, was, you know, not a slap hitter or anything like that in the minors, but I never thought of him developing into a, a huge slugger. He slugged like 650 over his final 30 games last year. Uh, is, is he just a lot stronger than I realized? Is that, is that real? Or was it just a, a you know, kind of a, a good month and he's more of like a, he's, he's going to be more like a 470 guy for his career? Yeah. I mean, I think he, so in the minor leagues, he was always aggressively pushed maybe even to levels that he really shouldn't have been at. The Royals just seemed to really like the tools. And so he would, you know, be at double A when he was 19 or something like that, even even when the numbers, so like the offensive numbers in the minor leagues were never really that good. And then they even pushed him to the major leagues before he was probably ready, both in the 2015 World Series as a pinch runner and then trying to get him the next year and, and on and on. And, then, you know, he's still only 23. And if you, like, watch him play and see him in person, I mean, he looks like an NFL, like, cornerback or NFL free safety. I mean, he's pretty put together, and the power is, comes naturally from both sides of the plate. So I, I really do think that he's a guy that could hit, in this kind of era of baseball, is a guy that could hit 25 to 30 home runs fairly easily. So I think he does have a little, a little bit more power than maybe people realize. And his his offensive numbers just at the major league level were so basically was just really overmatched for the first year and a half he seemed to be in the big leagues until he sort of finally kind of figured things out last year and he was still only 22. It's a small thing, but I would just like to correct that when I said 470 as a sort of disappointing sounding slugging percentage, I should have gone with a lower number. So 470 <laughs> is a good number. I probably would have gone if I'd had a minute to think. I probably would have said 435. Which again, not a big difference, but just to to clarify, the Royals last year uh, drafted what like uh, ten college players to start their draft, uh, including a, a bunch in the first hundred picks, which is you know the sign of uh, sort of sometimes the sign of a team that wants to get talent into the upper levels of the system quickly, uh, which makes sense if you want guys who are going to help you quickly. The Royals look like a team that should be going on a uh, multi-year rebuild. Does the draft uh, say anything about where they see themselves in the cycle, what they, what we might expect them to do, say, like next offseason, uh, or uh, am I reading into something that should not be read into? Yeah, there's. it's interesting what they did, right? So they, they had five picks, I think, in the top 70 or so last year, and they took five college pitchers. You know, one reason they did that is, and maybe this is not the best strategy, but they just had really no pitching in their minor league system. They really needed to replenish that. And they also had most of their best players, like most of their, their top prospects were guys that were kind of like at low A or maybe high A last year. So I think they thought by drafting those five college pitchers who are all sort of in that age 20 to 22 range, that those guys would match up pretty favorably with the wave that they do have coming. So I, their, their target date or the year that they've used is like, this is the next time they're really going to go for it in terms of spending money and, and signing guys to multi-year deals and potentially adding stuff in free agency is 2021. You know, maybe that's sped up if they have a strangely good year this year and, and they have some younger players, younger, like guys like Ryan O'Hearn and Hunter Dozier and some guys that even, you know, like kind of fringy prospects 
as it is. If, if those guys develop into some something, maybe the, the the timeline gets sped up. But it does seem like most of their core, like their next core, is going to be starting this year at low or excuse me, high A Wilmington, or be like around double A. And they're trying to find you know maybe four or five or six guys to kind of pair with Mondesi by you know 2021, 2022. And that's kind of the next time they're going to make their major push. So, I you know they 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 could have gone out and gone high school players in the draft last year, and maybe it would have been a longer timeline. So maybe yeah, like I, I think you're reading into it a little bit that they were trying to speed it up just a little bit. So the Royals are without Salvador Perez this year, who has a UCL injury, having Tommy John surgery. They brought in Martin Maldonado, and they have Cam Gallagher. As you just wrote, Gallagher is a a good pitch framer, so is Maldonado. If you factor in those things and the fact that that's always been a weakness for Perez, I don't know how much this loss actually hurts them, wins and losses-wise, but even if it does, I, I guess maybe one or two losses for the Royals this year might not make that much of a difference. But what sort of other factors, if any, are we not taking into account there with Perez is kind of the fan favorite team leader type who will be around presumably, but won't be in games. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a psychological effect. And I also think that his, you know, numbers, if you just look at, you know, raw OPS or OPS plus, they're not all that impressive. You may not, they might not stand out that much, but he does offer some power in the middle of the lineup. And this is a team that seemingly is not going to have a lot of power or, you know, maybe not even just a lot of, great offensive players in the middle of their lineup. So to even subtract from, to go from Perez to Maldonado offensively, I think you're losing something, you know, maybe the defense and everything else is, like you said, maybe it's only worth a win or two, but you add that into just the psychological effect of knowing that he's not going to be in the lineup for a full year and that it happened during spring training. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a blow. Um, It's sort of like, you know, you were lining up the season thinking, okay, if this goes right and this goes right and this goes right, and you you have like 10 things on those lists, and then before any of those things can even go right, one thing goes majorly wrong, just not the best way to start the season. I realized that I should ask one more question about the fast guys because I have a, a personal stake in Terrence Gore's success, or at least his playing time, because I took him in our annual minor league free agent draft, which means that I get points essentially if he gets plate appearances. Do you know what Gore's role is going to be? Like, is he going to be on the roster all year? Is he going to hit ever? Yeah. So this is another thing that's interesting about the Royals. You know, they signed him to a major league deal or at least a split contract. So right. he is on the 40 man roster and it seemed like they, they talked about like they want him to be on the 25 man roster. They want to sort of use him as that pinch running specialist, maybe a guy that could come in on defense if they need him to, you know, they don't use their bench particularly that much. Ned Yost always seems to carry, like he can have three man bench and it's just, he doesn't pinch hit. He just doesn't use it much. And they have Chris Owings who can kind of be a guy that can fill in a lot of spots. So, yeah, I, I, it seems to be that Terrence Gore is going to start the season on the 25-man roster, and the Royals are just going to see how it works and see if he can be, you know, a, a player that can kind of help them and be that kind of weapon at the end of the games. So, at the very least, like, it's, they, you know, like, they, they actually tried this, and it was partly because Gerard Dyson was hurt, but Terrence Gore actually started the season with the Royals in 2016 on the 25-man roster, and he hung around for like a month or so or maybe a little bit less. 
And then it was just became pretty apparent that it just was pretty hard to have a pinch runner on your team for the entire regular season. Um, so I am kind of skeptical about how long it will last, but it does seem like that you most likely will be on the 25 man roster uh, starting on opening day. Right. I like what I'm hearing there. So we have not really asked any questions about Royals pitching, which uh, maybe we shouldn't probably the less we talk about Royals pitching, the better, but I do want to ask a question at least about Kyle Zimmer because he's a guy I saw out at Driveline Baseball last year when I was out there doing some reporting for the book. And it looks like he is at long last in line to make his major league debut, play some part on this team. So tell us how he looks and and about his uh, rehabilitation. Yeah, so he looks good. I mean, the Royals have kind of moved on from him ever being a starting pitcher at this point, at least. Maybe not ever, but uh, certainly looking at him more as a short, like, stint reliever. But yeah, like, his issue, you know, for the longest part, aside from the fact that his shoulder was just not really operational and his arm was just kind of in a, a wreck, seemingly, was that, you know, he would, he would every offseason, he would rehab and then he would come back and then he would, you know, maybe throw 94, 95 on the radar gun and then, you know, the next outing, it would be 88, 89. And that was just sort of the cycle for a few years. It does seem like he's kind of reached over the hump to this point where he's responding pretty well. Um, after you think he spent six months at driveline last summer, basically the entire season or close to it. So it does seem like if not, he's another guy, he's on the 40 man roster. So he has a chance to, if not on opening day, uh, to help out the bullpen pretty quickly. So he's, kind of I think Kyle Bodie I interviewed him for a story in the offseason and I asked hey what did you really know about Kyle Zimmer before he came to driveline and he goes well I you know I knew his pedigree as the first round pick but I basically knew that he had become a bit of a meme <laughs> and uh and I was like yeah that that is true and I think so like I always think about that about Kyle Zimmer now where it's like the baseball player who became a meme so I'm, I'm I guess for his sake I'm hoping that he, he gets to the major leagues and he uh, becomes just a baseball player who's played in the major leagues as opposed to the, the top prospect who became a meme. What's the uh, what's the most common question you get asked by Royals fans or by you know people who you're standing next to at a party? Is that the question you ask when you're out of Royals questions? <laughs> no, I, I'm well. I'm, I I am I uh, I uh, <laughs> I like that question in general for all people. I that is the most common question that I ask people that I'm with is uh-huh. what is the most common question that you get about your job? Uh-huh. But uh, specifically, the Royals just feel like uh, you know they're where they are, the the space they are in and the direction they are in is not that inspiring for conversation. And I'm curious yeah. what a fan is is most interested in knowing about from you right now. Yeah, I mean I guess it's just, hey, like when when is this team gonna potentially contend again? And I guess that's a logical question to ask. So I don't know, like um it does I don't know if this is this is a good a totally random thing. But uh, the the city of Kansas City has Patrick Mahomes now, and it seems, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing for the Royals organization, but like the oxygen has sort of been sucked up to the point where Patrick Mahomes has become such an instant darling that the Royals maybe are less inclined to have to really contend and, and be uh, a really good baseball team over the next year and a half. But also that may be bad that if the fans are sort of checking out uh, before the season. So I don't know. I think there is a kind of just like you said, an understanding of where the team is. And so the most common question is generally, 
hey, when do you think they're going to be good again? And I usually say, I'm not sure, maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> well, this is a question that you ask when you run out of questions about the Royals. Is there <laughs> a Royal that we are not asking about that we should be? Like someone, you know, obviously like Brad Keller had a, a really nice rookie year and Jake Junis has been interesting at times. And I don't know, is there anyone like on this pitching staff or someone not obvious that you think might actually surprise people and, and be worthy of conversation? You know, like I will... Brad Keller is worthy of conversation. He's going to start on opening day for the Royals, which maybe is not the best time for the Royals. Um, but he was a really good pitcher last year for a guy that did not strike guys out. And so it'll be interesting to see if he can be a really good pitcher again. I'll, I'll give you one other name. And I mean, he's a guy that you occasionally hear on the internet because he has an entertaining name, but his name is Richard Lovelady. Mm-hmm. And he is a left-handed reliever and will probably be up if not at the start of the season, will be up pretty soon. So I think he's a guy that can, like, has a lot of kind of funk from the left side, and he also throws really hard, and his strikeout numbers in the minor leagues have been pretty astounding. So I think he's maybe struck out, maybe I'm going to totally mess up these numbers, but it's probably like 140 strikeouts and 100 innings, maybe like the last two seasons or so. So he's a guy that could potentially be interesting to watch just as a as a next, if not closer, because I'm not sure if he's quite that, but as the next kind of dominant reliever. I don't know. I might be overselling how good he is, but his minor league numbers have been pretty good. All right. Well, we always end by asking for a win total prediction, which I will do. But I also want you to make a stolen base total prediction because I'm more interested in that than I am in the wins. Yeah, I well, stolen bases. I will say like 177, okay. and that might be way that might be way too high. I think the Indians led the major leagues in stolen bases last year, or maybe not major, definitely in the American League. And they, I don't even know if they got to 140. I looked that up earlier in camp. And yeah, 135. So, yeah, so 177 would be 40 more than the best team had last year, which would be pretty incredible. I feel like. I think the club record's like over 200. It's like 217 back when they had Willie Wilson and a number of other guys. So yeah, I'll I'll say 177 stolen bases, which will be a lot. And yeah, I would take that. That would be the the most since let's see the the 2002 Marlins had 177. The 2016 Brewers did have 181, which maybe we're overlooking. And then the uh, wow. t- 2009 Rays had 194, and the 2007 Mets had 200. They are the last to get to 200. So, yeah, it is, uh, it's rare even to get up into that territory. But, yeah, and in terms of wins and losses, I was thinking that they would win somewhere between 70 and 73 or 4 games. But with Salvador Perez's injury, I will... I'll say they finish uh, sixty with sixty-eight wins, mm-hmm. which what would that would be ninety-four losses, I believe. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, you can follow this exciting sixty-eight win team all season long, and read Rustin writing about it at the Athletic. You can also find him on Twitter at his name Rustin Dodd. Thank you very much, Rustin. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And Sam, I will talk to you next week because Meg will be on the next episode. So thank you. You're welcome. 
You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already done so. Dan Marino, Eduardo Landa, Brian Bailey, Daniel Heller, and Colin Worcester. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group, which is coming up on 9,000 members at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming at podcast fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. And thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine. If you don't believe me when I say it's good and that you'll like it, check out my pinned tweet to see some blurbs by people you might believe. Pre-orders really help us. So we'll be back with one more show this week. It'll be me and Meg, and we'll be previewing the White Sox and the Indians. So we'll talk to you then. Sweet is calling me back up Thus is calling me